Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will conclude our discussion of antitrust law and sport as we deep dive current NCAA litigation that has the potential to change college sports forever. Beginning with a quick reminder of what the Sherman Antitrust Act is and how it has historically intersected with the NCAA, we will then move to discuss the current lawsuits challenging the status quo of collegiate athletics. More specifically, we will break down both O'Bannon versus NCAA and Alston versus NCAA, examining the legal arguments both parties have made in assessing how the legal precedent of the past could affect the court's view of the cases moving forward. So, if you ever wondered how a video game might lead to the downfall of college sports, or questioned if college athletics might soon resemble the professional leagues, this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. Today is a conclusion to the three-part series we have done deep diving the application of antitrust law to the world of sports. In part one, we broke down the quintessential antitrust law, the Sherman Antitrust Act, providing historical background for why the law was passed and how the courts go about assessing it. We then looked at a number of historical cases, including but not limited to the 1922 Federal Baseball Club case, which resulted in Major League Baseball being granted an exemption from antitrust legislation. We broke down the historic USFL versus NFL lawsuit in which the NFL was found guilty of being a monopoly and using their powers to pressure TV networks to not work with the new upstart league. We also examined Frazier versus MLS and learned that professional sport leagues can set themselves up as a single entity to avoid many of the pitfalls of antitrust legislation. In part two, we applied the principles of antitrust law to college athletics, exploring multiple times in which the NSA has been sued and claims have been made that they are in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. We learn from these cases that there are both situations in which the NSA has been found to be in violation of the act and times where they have been found to not be in violation. Today, what I want to do in part three is conclude our discussion of this topic by focusing on the most recent litigation filed against the NCA, claiming that their bylaws and actions are in violation of antitrust law. More specifically, I want to dive into both O'Bannon and Austin versus NCA, breaking down what happened leading to these cases being filed and how the courts so far have applied the legal precedent we have learned about in reaching their decisions. But before we dive into these cases, I want to take a minute and provide a quick overview of what we've learned in part one and two of this three-part series, just in case you haven't listened to those episodes. So remember, the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed in 1890 due to the growing number of monopolies and trusts in the United States. Congress saw the formation and growth of massive companies like U.S. Steel and Standard Oil as a threat to America's capitalistic society. They found when companies grew so big that they controlled an entire marketplace, it made it hard, if not impossible, for others to compete. With no competition, the companies could charge whatever they wanted for their goods or products or services, as the consumers had no choice but to buy from them. 
these massive companies also brought about a number of other problems, such as an increase in fraud and corruption, a decrease in innovation and new ideas, and an ever-growing divide between the upper class and everyone else. And so, the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed with the goal of banning companies from forming trusts, which resulted in market control, price fixing, and a restriction on free trade, and banning monopolies or monopolistic practices, such as using your power in a market to control and limit competition. To determine whether the Sherman Antitrust Act has been violated, the courts will use one of three legal approaches, the rule of reason, the illegal per se rule, or the quick look rule of reason. While these are all slightly different, the goal of each is the same. That is, in their own way, they each assess the pro-competitive aspects of a company, its rules, bylaws, its processes, etc., and it weighs that against any anti-competitive effects that result from that aspect of the company in question. If the anti-competitive effect of a company's action outweighs the pro-competitive outcomes, then the company will be found to be in violation of the act. For example, if a handful of cable networks get together and decide that no one is going to charge less than $1,000 a month for a TV plan, then the court will look at the actions they are taking and ask them to explain how the companies coming together to set a minimum price is helping the consumers. Let's say that the companies argue that they need to work together to combat the growing streaming services. The court would assess their explanation in comparison to the harm that their actions have done. Fixing prices like that not only harms the consumer, but it also limits who has access to the resource. It prices certain people out of the product, and it doesn't allow the free market to set the prices through competitions. The court would then determine if the good that is being done by these companies coming together to set prices outweighs the harm of not allowing a free and open market to decide what the prices should be. In this made-up case, the court would most certainly rule that the harm outweighs the good, or the anti-competitive dwarfs the pro-competitive, and thus the companies are in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. In professional sports, the courts have issued many interesting rulings around the Sherman Antitrust Act. In 1922, the Supreme Court ruled in the Federal Baseball Club case that baseball is neither interstate nor commerce thus establishing an antitrust exemption for the sport that's carried through cases like Toulson v. New York Yankees and Flood v. Khan, though the Curt Flood Act of 1998 noted that that exemption only applies to baseball operations and not players. The NFL was not as lucky as they lost their major antitrust case against the USFL in 1986 and were found to be guilty of using their monopolistic power to restrict the market and the USFL's access to television networks. Though the USFL was only awarded a single dollar, which was then tripled according to law to $3, the case marked an important ruling and shone light on changes leagues needed to make to avoid such issues going forward. The major change was moving from a joint venture structure to a single entity status, a structure that the MLS or Major League Soccer made and saved them when the players sued them, claiming that the teams were acting together to fix how much money players could earn. As a single entity, all teams work as one under the league, thus making it impossible for them to conspire with each other and protecting them from claims of violations of Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. In Part 2 
of this antitrust series. We move the conversation from an overview of antitrust law and its application to professional sports to an in-depth discussion of the NCA and their history with antitrust lawsuits. We learn there that the courts have continuously stated in regards to bylaws and rules affecting athlete eligibility, the NCA has a pro-competitive reason to restrict athletes' activities including when it comes to transferring or moving from one school to another and determinations of eligibility status, more specifically, how the NCA defines and upholds the idea of amateurism. The pro-competitive argument the court continuously points to is best summed up in the court's ruling in the SMU antitrust case when the court stated, quote, in order to preserve the character and quality of the product, athletes must not be paid must be required to attend class and the like. And the integrity of the product cannot be preserved except by mutual agreement. If an institution adopted such restrictions unilaterally, its effectiveness as a competitor on the playing field might soon be destroyed. Thus, the NCAA plays a vital role in enabling college football to preserve its character and as a result, enables a product to be marketed which might otherwise be unavailable. End quote. The court went on to further say, quote, the NCA markets college football and sports as a product distinct from professional football and other professional sports. The eligibility rules create the product and allow its survival in the face of commercializing pressure. The goal of the NCA is to integrate athletics with academics. Its requirements reasonably further this goal. End quote. However, this doesn't mean that the NCA has been allowed historically to just do whatever they want when it comes to antitrust laws, as they have been found to be in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act both in 1984 and in 1998 in the Oklahoma Board of Regents and law cases respectfully. In both of these cases, the NCA imposed rules that didn't directly tie to student-athletes' eligibility, but were associated with member institutions and their coaches. In the Board of Regents case, the NCA stipulated that they, and they alone, had the authority and the power to negotiate television contracts for college football and stated that if any school or conference engaged in their own TV contracts and negotiations, they would face sanctions. The Oklahoma Board of Regents didn't stand for that, and they sued, claiming that the NCA was restricting their ability to enter into the marketplace and negotiate their own deals. In the law case, the NCA made a rule restricting the earning potential of a set of college coaches. The affected coaches sued and claimed that the NCA was again restricting the marketplace and engaging in price fixing. In both cases, the court agreed with the plaintiffs and found that the NCA was exercising its power and control over college sports to fix the market and limit, in various ways, the abilities of key stakeholders to earn what the market dictated they should. As the pro-competitive justification in both cases was dismissed by the courts, basically they argued that such restrictions were needed to establish competitive balance on the playing field, make sure college sports continue to exist in a world of growing commercialization. These specific rules that the NSA imposed were found to only have an anti-competitive outcome. The question that that leaves us with is within college sport and the National Collegiate Athletic Association, is the application of antitrust law really as simple as saying, if the rule or bylaw deals with defining what student-athletes are eligible to play, then it's legal. But if the rule restricts the ability of colleges and coaches to earn money, it is illegal? Well, the idea of that question and the distinction between what NSA's actions, rules, and bylaws are and are not violations of the Sherman Antitrust Act brings us to the main point of our conversation today. Two lawsuits 
that have made their way through the courts over the last 10 years challenging NCAA rules aimed at defining student-athlete eligibility and claiming they're in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Before we begin our analysis of the legal side of these cases, we need to go back and discuss a bit of the history of college sport video games. While the first video game was created in 1952, it wasn't until the 1970s that home video game consoles started to be produced and gaming became a massive industry. By 1980, the Atari 2600, which was the follow-up to the original Atari, which was the first home video game console, had sales of over $400 million, sparking in part other companies to dive into the market and start building their own consoles. This included Nintendo, who released the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES, in 1985, selling over 600 million units, and the Game Boy, the first handheld gaming system which was released in 1989 and sold over 150 million units worldwide. It also included Sega Enterprises, Inc., which created the Sega Master System in 1986, followed in 1989 by the Sega Genesis, which was the first 16-byte gaming console ever made. The release of the Sega Genesis sparked an ongoing battle between Sega and Nintendo, which was then joined in 2003 by Sony when they released the PlayStation. This three-way fight forced each company to continue to push to develop newer and better systems that were faster, had more memory, had better features, and most important to our conversation today, had better and more realistic games. The first sport video game actually dates back to just after the creation of video games themselves, when William Higginbotham created Tennis for Two. This was followed by a series of arcade games like Crown Soccer Special and Grand Prix in the 1960s, and games like Pong, Davis Cup, and Soccer, which were part of the 1970s home console video game movement. 1974 saw the first ever basketball video game, aptly named Basketball, followed by the first football video game in 1977. While these games all had different names, they were essentially the same. The quote-unquote ball was on the screen, and you controlled either the ball or an object, mostly a stick person, trying to either stop the ball from getting by you or propel the ball in the other direction. Racing games were also becoming popular at the time, but again, they were all very simple in form as you just controlled an object, in this case a car, and tried to move it around other objects. The major changes in sports video games came in 1987, with the expanded use of artificial intelligence and the evolution of video game graphics. This was on full display in the Electronic Arts, or EA for short, game Earl Weaver Baseball, and then in 1988 in the first ever John Madden football game. Four years later, 1992, NCAA Basketball came out on the Super NES system, marking the first NCAA video game. According to Complex.com, quote, In addition to being the first college b-ball game, it was also the first basketball game to use a three-dimensional perspective opposed to the flat side-by-side -side view. NCAA basketball contained college teams from the five major NCAA Division 1A conferences in North American version, while overseas, the game used fictional teams, end quote. The first college football game came out on Sega Genesis one year later. It was entitled Bill Walsh College Football and was also made by EA Sports. The game featured the top 24 schools from the 1992 season and 24 of the greatest teams since 1978. While the game didn't use the school or players' names or even school logos, it did use the city that the school was located in and it identified players by numbers 
making it pretty easy to tell who was who. Two years later, Bill Walsh College Football 95 came out, being the first version of a college video game to include the year in the game's title. This version expanded the number of schools to 36 and updated the gameplay to feature more plays and more user options. The video game changed its name for the following two years to College Football USA 96 and then 97, with the 96 version being the first to include all 108 Division I teams and real bowl games, and the 97 version being the first to feature a former athlete on the cover and having University of Nebraska quarterback Tommy Frazier don the art. 1997 marked a new release of a college basketball game as well, as 2K Sports created the NCAA Final Four game, which ran until 2004. However, the biggest change to college sport video games came in 1998, with the release of NCAA Football 98, NCAA Final Four 98, and March Madness 98, all of which not only used the NCAA's name and school names, but also had the name and likeness of newly graduated players, with the football game having Danny Werfel, Final Four having Paul Pierce, and March Madness having Tim Duncan. Moving forward, the EA Sports produced NCAA football and NCAA basketball continued to see small changes year over year, but they remained two of the most popular video games year in and year out. They had such success that in 2006, EA Sports created a college baseball game called MVP 06 NCAA Baseball, mirroring the basketball and football games, which included a former athlete on the cover and school names and logos, but no current athletes. While 2K Sports competed in the marketplace in the 90s and 2000s, producing college basketball games from 1997 to 2004, and then again in 2007, EA Sports was the primary publisher of college sport video games up until NCAA Basketball 10, which came out in 09, and NCAA Football 14. All of this conversation about video games and college sports probably brings about a couple of questions to your mind. First, you might be wondering, how does all this work? How did EA Sports have the right to use the university's names and logos and the images of their stadiums, especially since all of that is trademarked and owned by each individual school. Well, put simply, EA Sports negotiated a licensing agreement with the NCA and Collegiate Licensing Company, or CLC, the biggest licensing company involved in college sports. They negotiated this deal for the rights to use the trademark content in their games. In return, the NCA and the member institutions received money. How much exactly? Well, those numbers are a bit hard to come by. But from what I could find, as Christy Doche reported, EA Sports used a formula to calculate out how much was paid to each individual institution. As she wrote on ESPN.com, quote, Licensing directors I spoke to weren't clear on the exact formula used to calculate revenue from video games like EA Sports, NCAA Football, and NCAA Basketball, the latter of which was discontinued in 2010, but they all agreed on several aspects. Royalties from the game are determined based on a number of factors, including a school's ranking in the polls and appearances in either bowl games for the football video game or March Madness appearances for the basketball video game. The formula is on a rolling multi-year basis, so schools were still receiving royalties from NSA basketball last year, despite the game being discontinued, end quote. For the 2012-2013 school year, Dosh reported Louisville made $85,845 from NSA football 
and another $26,594 from NSA basketball. Wisconsin made $143,076 from football and another $26,593 from NSA basketball. And Texas A&M made $57,000 from NSA football and another $18,615.80 from NSA basketball. Just to put those values into perspective, for the 2012-2013 school year, that money accounted for 1.9% of Texas A&M's total licensing revenue, whereas jersey sales made up 1.53% of their total licensing revenue. So where does the rest of the money go? Well, CLC took 15% off the top for brokering the licensing deal, and then EA Sports gets the rest. With some of the money going to the NBA Players Association for the rights to use those former college basketball players on the cover, but in total, EA Sports in the 2012-2013 school year made about $125 million off the NCAA football video game. So all this leads to a second question that you might be wondering. If the schools were making the money, and the CLC is making money, and EA Sports is making a lot of money, then why did they stop making the game? And the answer to that question brings us full circle, all the way back to the Sherman Antitrust Act in NSA Basketball 09. This 09 version of the NSA Basketball game, much like the previous versions, continued to add new features and try to push the envelope in an attempt to sell more and more games. As EA Sports advertised, the new game had a, quote, true-to-life style of play for every Division I team, including authentic team ratings and scouting reports from the creators of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook. The game had more authentic arenas and mascots, plus classical and alternative jerseys, and new in-game commentary and analysis by Dick Vitale, Brad Nessler, and Aaron Andrews. The new game had a coaching feedback system, an all-new game tempo meter, and a setting that allowed you to become the ultimate champion. How? With a brand new game mode that placed 64 of the all-time greatest NCAA college basketball teams into the ultimate bracket and allowed the gamer to play with any of them to see who was the ultimate team, end quote. While these and other new features were for the most part celebrated by the gaming community, it is this last feature the ultimate champion that ended up being the downfall of the game and might have changed college sports forever. As was eventually described by the judges in the case write-up, quote, in 2008, Ed O'Bannon, former All-American basketball player at UCLA, visited a friend's house where his friend's son told O'Bannon that he was depicted in a college basketball video game produced by Electronic Arts. EA, a software company that produced video games based on college football and men's college basketball from the late 1900s until around 2013. The friend's son turned on the video game and O'Bannon saw an avatar of himself, a virtual player who visibly resembled O'Bannon, played for UCLA, and wore O'Bannon's jersey number 31. O'Bannon had never consented to the use of his likeness in the video game, and he had not been compensated for it. End quote. It is again this last bit. The fact that O'Bannon felt that he was in the game. The player in question wore his number, played his position at his school, and was left-handed just like him. 
It is that fact and the fact that he never gave permission to the NCAA, EA Sports, or CLC to use his image or likeness in the game that O'Bannon objected to. So what did O'Bannon do? By now you can probably guess. He sued the NCAA, EA Sports, and CLC. Altogether, he claimed that the NCAA's licensing of current and former student-athletes' name, likeness, and images to CLC and EA Sports violated Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. What exactly about a sports video game using player's image violates antitrust law? Well, it wasn't the licensing specifically, but rather the NCAA rules stipulating college sport is only for amateur athletes, and that to be an amateur athlete, you cannot make any money off your name, likeness, or image, or as they call it, your NIL. The main argument boils down to one of hypocrisy almost questioning why the NCAA gets to control the market on student-athletes' NILs and generate money from it, while the student-athlete themselves received no direct compensation. Around the same time this lawsuit is getting filed, another former college athlete, this time a football player named Sam Keller, who played quarterback at Arizona State University and the University of Nebraska, brought a separate suit against the NCAA, CLC, and EA Sports, claiming, quote, EA had impermissibly used student-athletes' NILs in its video games, and that the NCAA and CLC had wrongfully turned a blind eye to EA's misappropriation of these NILs, end quote. While the Keller suit claimed that the actions of these companies were in violation to a number of different laws, including things like publicity statutes and other common law violations, the real importance of his filing is that his case and the O'Bannon case were eventually consolidated into one, which led to the courts granting a motion for class certification. In layman's terms, that means the case wasn't just O'Bannon and Keller versus the NCAA. It now was all current and former student-athletes who had their names, likenesses, and images used in the EA Sports video games versus the NCAA, EA Sports, and CLC. Somewhat seeing the writing on the wall, and in part to avoid the negative publicity that was bound to come their way, both EA Sports and CLC settled out of court for a reported $40 million. It was estimated that as many as 200,000 students were a part of the class action, when discussing how that money then made it to the players, Christy Doche noted, quote, That depends on how many of the current and former student-athletes who are eligible to file claims. But estimates have it anywhere from as low as $48 for each year the athlete was on the roster to $951 for each year the image of the athlete was used in the games, according to Star-Telegram. To be eligible to file the claim, the current or former student-athlete must believe his likeness, which can be a combination of his physical characteristics and biographical information like his home state, was used in the video games created since 2003, end quote. All this legal action and settlements led to EA Sports, NCAA Basketball, and NCAA Football stopping production in 2010 and 2014, respectfully. But remember... EA Sports and CLC were only two of the defendants. The other major one, the NCA, didn't settle. And so, a bench trial pursued. So, remember, we are dealing with a claim that the NCAA's rules prohibiting student-athletes from receiving compensation for their name, image, and likeness violates Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. More specifically, O'Bannon claimed the NCAA, which they argued is a trust or a joint venture, or in layman's term, a collection of companies or schools in this case, that have come together to set rules and regulations for college sports and negotiate deals. They argued that that association 
was acting to fix market prices and limit the earning potential and ability of student athletes. They pointed to the NIL deal with CLC and EA Sports as a prime example, noting that the NCAA rule restricting student athletes' ability to capitalize on their own NILs was a clear example of price fixing that hurt the consumer, who in this case was the college athlete. As with all antitrust lawsuits we've examined over the different parts of this podcast series, the question in this case became, do the anti-competitive effects of the rules or bylaws outweigh the pro-competitive justification and need for the rule? Here, the court began its analysis by first establishing what marketplace they needed to base their judgments in. That is, in order to determine if the rule restricted fair trade and fixed pricing in a marketplace, they needed to identify what marketplace they were using for their analysis. In this case, they identified two distinct markets that might be affected by the rule in question, the college education market and the group licensing market. Next, the court moved to apply the rule of reason analysis to assess how each rule affecting student athletes' ability to be compensated for the use of their name, likeness, and image, or profit at all from participation in college sports, how those rules potentially hurt competition and how it potentially helped it. The plaintiffs began by first arguing the anti-competitive aspects of the rules, and in doing so, they described what the education market would look like if the current rules restricting athletes from receiving money for use of their name, likeness, and image were removed. They noted that, quote, schools would compete with each other by offering recruits compensation exceeding the cost of attendance, which would effectively lower the price that the recruits must pay for the combination of educational and athletic opportunities that the school provides, end quote. This would be similar to the way free agency works in professional sports. For example, if you are a great high school basketball player, Duke and North Carolina and Kansas and Kentucky might all approach you in high school and try to recruit you to come and play for their college, just like they do now. But in addition to trying to sell you on the team and maybe the city or the coaching staff or your chances of going pro to the NBA, if there was no rule dictating that you could not be paid money to play college sports, they could also try to get you to choose their school by offering you more money than anyone else. This is how a free market economy works. And O'Bannon argued that the current rules restricted this market by limiting the amount of money the school could offer you to only the costs of college, that is, tuition, room and board, and a few other minor expenses. Furthermore, by not allowing student-athletes to capitalize off their name, likeness, and image, the NCAA was, as O'Bannon contended, engaging in price-fixing, fixing the amount that athletes could make all the way down to zero, which hurt student-athletes' ability to make money. While applying the arguments of the anti-competitive effects of rules stating student-athletes cannot profit off their NILs is pretty straightforward when discussing the college education market, it's a bit more blurry in regards to the group licensing market. As the court said, quote, the NCAA rules do not have an anti-competitive effect on the group licensing market. The court explained that although these submarkets exist, there would be no competition in any form if the challenge NCAA rules were abolished. The court reasoned that the value of an NIL license to a live game broadcaster or a video game company would depend on the licensee acquiring every other NIL license that was available. A live game broadcaster, for example, would need to acquire a license from every team or player whose game it might telecast, end quote. Given these requirements, the court deemed it highly unlikely that groups of student athletes would compete with each other to sell their NIL rights. On the contrary, they would have an incentive 
to cooperate to make sure that the package of NIL rights sold to buyers was as complete as possible. So basically, the courts are trying to say that they believe there is an anti-competitive argument to be made in having rules that restrict earning potentials of student-athletes when it comes to the student-athletes playing college sports, but not when it comes to them trying to sell their NILs to video game companies. Thus, going forward, we need to only consider the college education market claims and not the claims that the rules fix prices in the group licensing market. Which means... The court then moved forward to consider the NCAA's pro-competitive justification for limiting college athletes' ability to make money off their name, likeness, and image. As you can imagine, in arguing the pro-competitive stance, the NCAA relied on the same arguments they had in previous cases. Cases such as McCormack versus NCAA, Gaines versus NCAA, Smith versus NCAA, Jones versus NCAA, and Banks versus NCAA, all of which we discussed in part two of our antitrust sport podcast. The NSA argued that rules like those that stipulated student-athletes were not allowed to be paid for or capitalized off their name, likeness, and image were needed to preserve college sport and, in fact, help college sport differentiate itself from other forms of professional sports in a competitive marketplace. This differentiating factor resulted in the athletes staying amateur rather than being professional, a fact that they felt drove people to consume the product. However, this time, the court didn't take well to the full argument, as they noted, quote, The NSA's definition of amateurism was malleable, changing frequently over time in significant and contradictory ways, end quote. They go on to say, quote, That even today, the NSA's definition of amateurism is inconsistent. Although players generally cannot receive compensation other than scholarships, tennis players are permitted to accept up to $10,000 in prize money before enrolling in college and student-athletes are permitted to accept Pell Grants, even when those grants raise their total financial aid above the cost of attendance. It thus concluded that amateurism was not, in fact, a core principle of the NCAA. The court did uncover an important distinction in assessing this claim, though. They found that it wasn't necessarily the fact that athletes weren't getting paid that drove people to consume college sports, but rather the fact that they were classified as amateur athletes. Put bluntly, People said they liked and consumed college sports because they liked watching amateur athletes. They didn't say they liked watching college sports because the people didn't get paid or they didn't make money or any of that. They said they liked watching amateurs. So since, as the court found, the definition of what an amateur athlete is was constantly changing, the matter of being paid was less important than merely holding the title of amateur. Thus, rules stipulating college athletes were amateurs were seen as a pro-competitive argument. But the definition of amateur was seen as being something that could be more fluid. The NSA followed the amateurism argument up with the claim that limiting what a student athlete was able to receive in forms of compensation to only college scholarships kept universities from driving up the cost of college sports, which would in turn, the NSA argued, decrease competition as it would make it so costly to run a college football or basketball team that many colleges and universities would have to forego having college sports altogether due to their inability to keep up with the rising costs. Thus, the rules, they argued, helped establish and maintain competitive balance. While the court agreed that competitive balance is a legitimate pro-competitive argument, they said the rules and questions did not promote it. 
The court pointed to the NSA's own studies showing compensation rules do not bring about balance in the marketplace and aptly noted that while the rules restrict payments to players, they do not restrict how much money a school can spend on coaching or facilities or other amenities. Having that pro-competitive argument rejected, the NCAA turned next to old claims that the rules restricting earnings of college athletes were needed to, quote, integrate academics and athletics and thereby improve the quality of the educational services provided to student-athletes, end quote. This argument stems all the way back to some of the original reasons for the formation of the national organization overseeing college sports. As in the late 1800s, early 1900s, faculty and university presidents were concerned with the growing commercialization of college sports and the fact that sports were distracting college students from their education. As such, the NCA argued they were formed and instituted rules to make sure education was still at the center of college sports. One such rule that assured this was the amateurism rule that, they reasoned, helped make sure student-athletes were focused on their school and sports and not on just making money. The court outright rejected this claim, though. They said that keeping academics integrated into education was a viable pro-competitive argument, but they noted other rules, like making student-athletes attend classes and progress towards a degree while maintaining a certain GPA, and rules that limited the amount of practice times or activities that student-athletes were allowed to engage in. They noted those types of rules were more so involved in keeping education at the forefront of college sports, not rules that limited the amount of money student-athletes could receive for their name, likeness, and images. However, here the court did acknowledge that keeping student-athletes from earning large sums of money that might not be available to other college students might help form a social wedge between athletes and all their students. This wedge was a legitimate pro-competitive justification for rules limiting the amount of money athletes could make. Finally, the NCAA reasoned that the restrictive NIL rules helped increase output of college sports and that they helped assure more opportunities for students to play college football and basketball. They said, quote, The NCAA contends that its rules accomplish this goal by attracting schools with a philosophical commitment to amateurism to compete in Division I college athletics and by enabling schools to compete in Division I sports that otherwise could not afford to do so, end quote. Simply put, the NCAA claimed that schools chose to be a part of their association due to the association's dedication to keeping athletes amateurs. If the amateur status was dropped and schools were forced to pay college athletes, then they said less schools would be able to have college sports merely because they wouldn't be able to afford them. So keeping student athletes from being able to earn money enabled more universities to have intercollegiate athletics, thus creating more opportunities and a pro-competitive justification. Again, though, the courts rejected this argument, noting there was no plausible connection between the ideals of amateurism and schools being a part of Division I athletics. They said there was no proof that if amateurism was removed, colleges wouldn't be able to afford to compete, primarily because, as they pointed out, O'Bannon wasn't asking the NCAs to institute a rule that said schools had to pay athletes. Rather, O'Bannon only was asking that athletes could receive compensation and still play. Basically, if a school didn't have the means or didn't want to pay their players, they didn't have to, and they could still be a part of Division I athletics. Think of the Ivy League schools here. The NSA allows student-athletes to receive scholarships for playing sports, but the Ivy Leagues choose to not allow it within their institutions. The court is basically just pointing out the same holds true with allowing players to earn money from their name, likeness, and image. 
So to recap, the NCA makes a number of pro-competitive arguments for the need for rules restricting student-athletes' abilities to profit from their NILs. However, all but two of them are rejected as valid claims. The only two that the court accepts is the idea that if athletes are given access to money that non-athletes are not, then a social wedge might be driven between the two groups. Additionally, the court accepts the idea that amateurism helps drive demand for college sports, though they recognize that the definition of what makes an amateur athlete within college sports is fluid. At the same time, the court also established that there was a legitimate anti-competitive effect of the rules limiting athletes' abilities to earn money on the market. So finding both pro-competitive and anti-competitive effects of the rule in question, what's the court to do? Well, the next step is that the court has to move to see if there are any other ways in which the NCAA could operate to achieve their two pro-competitive outcomes without causing any anti-competitive effects that hurt student-athletes. We call this looking for a less restrictive alternative, or LRA. Here, O'Bannon proposed two different ways that college athletes could be compensated and capitalize off their name, likeness, and image while still maintaining the title of amateur athlete and not creating a social wedge between athletes and non-athletes. First, he proposed allowing schools to increase the amount of scholarship money that they were able to pay college students from covering just tuition, room, and board in textbooks to also allowing schools to cover the, quote, full cost of attendance, end quote. This would allow schools to give extra money to college students to cover additional expenses, such as transportation and some other personal expenses that come with going to school. Second, he suggested that schools be permitted to set up trusts for student-athletes, that would be paid out after the student athlete leaves college. This would allow the school to make money off the NILs of college athletes and then share that money with the athletes themselves once they leave. By not awarding that money until after college, college athletes still maintain the title of amateur, which would keep the demand for the product high, and they wouldn't be at risk of receiving any additional money not available to other students, thus avoiding any type of social wedge. Taking everything into consideration, the court ended up finding that the NCAA was in fact in violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act as they engaged in a form of price fixing that restricted student-athletes' abilities to capitalize off their NILs. While the NCAA rules did have an anti-competitive effect, they noted two legitimate pro-competitive arguments. And so the court worked to restructure the rules so that the pro-competitive outcomes could still be realized without causing any harm to the consumers. Their solution? Implementing O'Bannon's ideas, allowing for Division I basketball and football player scholarships to include the full cost of attendance for each respective school, and allowing colleges to pay Division I football and basketball student-athletes up to $5,000 a year in deferred compensation, meaning $5,000 from a trust once they leave the school, for the university's rights to use their name, likeness, and image. Now, as is the case with most NCAA antitrust lawsuits, the decision of the district court was appealed up to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, and it was affirmed in part and vacated in part. The appeals court agreed that the NCA was in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act due to the fact that the rules were too restrictive, but they found that the district court erred in stipulating that college athletes be allowed to receive up to $5,000 a year deferred payments. Instead, 
They said merely allowing college scholarships to cover the full cost of attendance was enough, and that balanced out the established anti-competitive effects with the pro-competitive outcomes. Both O'Bannon and the NCA had objections with this ruling and filed a writ of shishiori with the Supreme Court, who declined to hear the case in 2016, meaning the decision of the Ninth Circuit Court stood and the door was left slightly open for the Supreme Court to hear a different future case that might end any debates as to whether the NCA and their rules limiting the amount of money student-athletes can earn violated antitrust law. Which brings us to our second case, NCA versus Alston. This case began back in 2014 when former West Virginia running back Shawnee Alston and former University of California center Justin Hartman, representing a class of former college athletes made up of football, men's, and women's basketball players, sued the NCAA in the five major conferences, claiming, just as O'Bannon and so many before them had, that the NCAA was in violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. However, unlike O'Bannon, Austin's claims didn't deal directly with NIL issues. Rather, Alston challenged the entire compensation framework of the NCAA. Why did Austin file a suit in the first place? Well, he claimed that when he was in college, he, quote, was forced to take out additional loans to cover the cost of attending West Virginia while his coach made in excess of $3 million a year, end quote. In other words, he thought it was wrong that he was forced to go in debt to play a college sport, which in turn resulted in his coach making millions of dollars. He felt that he and the other student athletes should be entitled to a larger piece of the money. The NCAA, having changed their own rules in 2014 to allow the Big Five conferences to pay student athletes the full cost of tuition, as the O'Bannon decision dictated they must, asked the court for a summary judgment. They based the motion on the argument that the matter had already been adjudicated and ruled on by the courts in O'Bannon and on the argument that they had already changed their rules to comply with the court's verdict. However, the district courts denied this motion because they found that the O'Bannon case dealt with a narrow issue of NILs, whereas the issues in the Austin case were much broader and spoke to all forms of compensation. With the pretrial motions over, the case went to a bench trial. Like in O'Bannon, the court applied the rule of reason analysis to assess whether the NSA rules limiting athlete compensation violated Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Thus, the first step was establishing the market that was being alleged to be restricted by the rules. Similar to the previous case, the court accepted that the market in question is one where student athletes sell their athletic services to universities, quote, in exchange for athletic scholarships and other payments, end quote. Next, it fell on Alston to establish that the rules limiting how much an athlete was able to receive had an anti-competitive effect on student-athletes in the marketplace. This actually became pretty easy to show as student-athletes produced an economic analysis showing, quote, schools, as the buyer of athletic services, exercise monopsonist power to artificially cap compensation at a level that is not commensurate with the student-athlete's value, end quote. The analysis further added, quote, but for the challenge restraints, schools would offer recruits compensation that more closely correlated with their talents, end quote. Basically, Austin is making the same anti-competitive argument as O'Bannon, claiming that if college student-athletes were in a free market, like, say, professional sports is, 
that they would make considerably more money than just the amount that they're currently making, which covers their tuition, room and board, books, and a couple other minor academic costs. To prove this, they commissioned a report to be done, which basically looked at how much an average college football and basketball player were making and compared that to how much that same athlete would make if college sport was akin to a professional league. They added up things like the average cost of tuition for a year, the cost of room and board, the per diem athletes receive for food when they travel, equipment that athletes get from the athletics department like shoes, gloves, or bats. And that was the total number that you can say the athlete is getting paid while at college. That total number was then compared to the average salary for a rookie in the NBA, WNBA, and NFL. And so what you are able to show is how much a college student earns compared to how much they would earn if college was run as a professional league was. And they found that those numbers were significantly lower for the college athletes. Now, you might be thinking, well, of course they are. But that's because the NFL and the NBA make way more money than college football and college basketball do. And you'd be right. But in performing these calculations, you can actually control for that variable. And they did. And they were still able to show that college athletes were getting a significantly lower portion of the money that was generated from their sports than professional athletes did. Thus, lending credence to the idea that if you remove the NCAA rules restricting compensation for student-athletes, then college athletes would be able to make more money. Therefore, it can be argued that it is the rule itself that is in fact restricting the market for college athletics. When the NSA pushed back a bit on this, showing that they had changed their rules to increase compensation for athletes up to the full cost of attendance as the abandoned decision dictated, the court just rejected their argument, noting that even these increased amounts were still caps on compensations that were artificially low and far below what a student athlete would be able to earn in a free market. So Austin was able to show that the practice of limiting compensation for college football and basketball players had an anti-competitive effect on student-athletes trying to sell their athletic services to universities. Which means it then became time for the NCAA to argue the pro-competitive outcomes these rules brought. Having just argued the same case in O'Bannon, the NCAA just went back to the same arguments. They said, quote, the challenge rules implement amateurism which drives consumer interest in college sports because consumers value amateurism, end quote. Well, the court accepted that consumers are driven to watch college sports in part because of the amateur status of college athletes. In diving into the argument deeper, they started to run into some of the same questions as the court did in the O'Bannon case. They noted that it's more the idea that the athletes are amateurs that drives the fans rather than the actual amateur status of the athletes. They pointed to the fact that the definition of amateurism had continuously changed over the history of college sports, and that it even varied in different sports today. So it wasn't the fact that the athletes weren't getting paid that drove viewers to watch, but rather that they were considered amateurs by the association. It didn't matter that those athletes were receiving money in the form of college scholarships, or getting money for food in their apartments, or that they were getting money in the form of free shoes or pieces of equipment, or that they were getting free medical treatment. All of that didn't matter. The only thing that mattered is that the NCAA still considered those athletes receiving those things amateurs. Moreover, the court looked at the changes that had befallen college sport rules on paying college athletes implemented after the NCAA made the same pro-competitive argument in the O'Bannon case, 
and found that increasing payments to student-athletes in the form of paying them the full cost of attendance had not decreased the consumption of College Board at all. They said these payments, many of which host date O'Bannon, have not diminished demand for college sports, which remains exceedingly popular and revenue-producing. In the end, the court concluded that having rules that maintained the amateur status of college student-athletes did, in fact, have a pro-competitive effect on the market, as it helped differentiate college sports from professional sports and create a demand for the market in question. What it means to be an amateur athlete does not matter as much as being labeled an amateur athlete, though. As long as student-athletes aren't receiving, quote, unlimited payments unrelated to education akin to salaries seen in professional sports leagues, end quote, people will still consider them amateurs and still be drawn to the sport. For example, athletes could have money given to them after they leave college to continue their schooling, and that would not change how consumers view their amateur status, and thus it would not affect the demand for the product. With the courts establishing both an anti-competitive effect of the NCAA's athlete compensation rules and a pro-competitive justification for having them, they again had to move to determine if there was a least restricted approach for the NCAA to accomplish their end goal of preserving amateurism and consumer demand. First, they suggested that the NCAA be allowed to continue to limit scholarships to cover nothing less than the full cost of attendance. Second, They agreed to continue to limit the amount of money and benefits student-athletes could receive that is unrelated to education. In other words, money given directly to student-athletes for athletic performance or participation. But they agreed to increase the amount of money to be awarded to athletes for academic purposes, such as, quote, computers, science equipment, musical instruments, and other items not currently included in the cost of attendance, but nonetheless related to the pursuit of various academic studies, end quote. This also included, quote, post-eligibility scholarships for undergraduate, graduate, and vocational programs at any school, tutoring, study abroad experiences, and paid post-eligibility internships, end quote. The court agreed that the school could award an amount up to $5,600 to cover these academic expenses as that amount of money has been shown to not affect the demand for the product and be in line with the NCAA's view of amateurism. These solutions, the court felt, would not harm the athlete's status as students, would maintain the market differentiation between college and professional sports, would keep demand for the product the same, and allow student-athletes to receive more money to cover the expenses that arise when attending college, and thus, and thus allow them to not have to go in debt to play college sports like Austin did. Therefore, the final verdict was that the NCAA was in fact in violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act, and that they needed to institute these changes to become compliant. Not surprisingly, just as with the initial Bannon decision, both sides were not completely satisfied with the district court's decision, and thus both sides appealed again to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, who promptly affirmed the district court's decision. However, Austin and the NCAA didn't stop there, as they continued to appeal the case all the way to United States Supreme Court, where it was argued March 31st, 2021. As of June 2021, we are still awaiting the decision from that court. While we await their final verdict, many are arguing that the decision has the potential to drastically change college sport forever. As former Maryland basketball player and current co-chair of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics noted in a Washington Post article, quote, we know what's gonna happen if in fact Austin wins. 
It will open the door in some way, shape, or form to pay for play in some of the other reforms that some people have been pushing for." End quote. But will it? As we saw after the final verdict was issued in O'Bannon, a case many claimed would lead to a drastic restructuring of college sports, not much really changed purely from the court's decision. Yes, athletes were allowed to receive an increase in their scholarship allotment that led to the full cost of attendance being covered, but not much else changed. If Alston wins, then yes, that will open the door to student-athletes receiving additional compensation of up to $5,600 a year to cover the additional academic costs not currently covered, but it's very unlikely that we will all of a sudden see college student-athletes starting to be paid akin to professional athletes. Why? Because the courts have held time and time again that there is a legitimate pro-competitive aspect to limiting compensation for college athletes so that the ideals of amateurism can be preserved and college sport can differentiate itself from professional sport. Such a differentiation, the District Court and Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals noted, helps college sport compete in a crowded marketplace of athletics and maintain a fan base. This was also found to be true in O'Bannon, as well as a plethora of other lawsuits that have been filed over the years claiming the NSA rules violate Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. So then, what are people talking about when they claim that this could change everything? I believe they're talking about the slippery slope that this may create. If we go back just to the early 2010s, the amount of money that was a part of a college athlete's scholarship was less after the O'Bannon decision that increased to the full cost of attendance. Now, if Austin wins, that number will go up by another $5,000 to $6,000. People see this decision as a step towards the NCAA member institutions awarding college athletes, and by that we really mean football and basketball players, significantly more money than they ever had before. Basically, once they add the five dollars to $6,000 to cover the additional cost of college, then another lawsuit might come challenging the demand argument. Meaning, the NCAA continuously says that amateurism is needed to keep the demand for their product high. But, as the courts pointed out in Austin, the addition of money doesn't seem to mess with that demand. So once we add more money, another lawsuit could come about challenging that demand argument again, and if the demand remains high, they can point to that and say, athletes should be making even more. The NCAA knows this, and instead of just sitting idly by and waiting for other cases, or waiting for Congress to pass laws dictating what they have to do, they are working to try to get out in front of what is about to come. And in order to do that, they have a lot of work they have to do. Remember, in 2019, California passed the Fair Pay to Play Act, which required that the NCAA and NCAA colleges and universities in the state of California allow student athletes to earn money off the use of their name, likeness, and images. Now, that law doesn't go into effect until 2023, but after that passed, a slew of other states started passing similar legislation. In response, the NCAA created a committee that actually recommended allowing student-athletes to receive benefits from their NILs as long as those benefits could be tied to education and preserve the distinction between college and pro-athletes. Furthermore, in February of 2021, EA Sports announced it's bringing back the beloved NCAA football game. While the game says that they will use rosters with no names, likeness, or images of real players in accordance to NCAA rules, they've run the risk of falling back into the same issues that they had in the O'Bannon case that they settled out of court. As a result, I imagine, just like the NCAA, 
EA is monitoring the Austin decision and the legislation that has been proposed in Congress and passed in many states before determining exactly how and when they will proceed. If all things continue to move in the current direction though, you can bet that in some way college athletes will receive a licensing fee from the game for quote unquote educational purposes. The next real change to college sport will come when the money that is being paid to the athletes is given to them for playing the sport or for the use of the athlete's name, likeness, or image, and it doesn't have to be tied to some aspect of education. Once the athlete is allowed to capitalize on their athletic ability and accomplishments and their notoriety, and we don't have to tie it into an educational purpose, that's when the real change will occur. When will it happen? I don't know. But the Olsen decision is most likely a small step in that direction, rather than the major change that so many people are acting like it's going to be. Hopefully, throughout not only today's podcast, but also the other two podcasts we have done on antitrust law and sports, you've learned more about not only what antitrust law is and why it's important in the United States, but also how it's been applied to sports and how it might help restructure one of the most beloved sporting pastimes in our country. If you haven't heard the first two episodes in this three-part series, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them as they would help provide context and a deeper understanding of what we talked about today. You can find them on iTunes or Spotify or any place you listen to podcasts. The first one is entitled Sport Law, the history of antitrust law in sports. The second is entitled Sport Law, NCAA versus the world, part one. If you have any questions about antitrust law and its application to sport or about college athletics, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the sport professor. Follow us in the podcast and stay up to date in the latest episodes and to learn more about what happens behind the scenes in the field of sport. Until next time though, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the sport professor podcast.